I'm Marcus Smith, and this is Constant Wonder. After leaving Southern California, moving to the Rockies about 40 years ago, this is my story, I, I quickly learned in my new location that my new neighbors were keenly interested in annual snowfall. Just remember, I was a kid who never saw snowfall until I was 15 years old. San Diego, we didn't see much of that stuff. None, actually. Well, now in Utah, uh, having come here a few decades back, I I observed how farmers, perhaps more than other people, they would follow the reports of seasonal snow depth and the water content in that snow, the snowpack. I I learned how to say snowpack. I found it all kind of interesting, but it wasn't really super engaging for many years. But then climate change. Nowadays, Uh, I can see friends and associates on social media in great numbers sharing graphics and maps that give updates, frequent updates of snow depth in the high elevations, the mountains adjacent to our cities uh, and the watersheds next to us. And then we are all crossing our fingers with every approaching cold front, hoping that something really wet is going to accompany that cold front. And... uh, Where I live, we've seen such a big drop in the last decade or so in the totals, the snow totals, that you you look back at the 20th century and you think that was just a glorious time of paradise with lots and lots of snow and let's say nothing of skiers and their interest in snow. To be very blunt, our reservoirs, they just don't hold as many years of water as you might think. And if you think my story here in Utah is worrisome, just remember there's always California we could be talking about, five years of drought and then uh, a little bit of a reprieve. But uh, to even pretend they're out of the woods, you would have to deny or disregard climate change. The entire west of the United States has great reason for concern. And we thought we'd take some time to visit with somebody who knows a great deal about snowfall and its relationship to climate and what we may or may not expect, how to think about this, how to gauge it, maybe how to measure it or or how it's being measured. We have with us now David Robinson. He's a geographer on the faculty at Rutgers University, and he is also New Jersey's state climatologist, among other areas of expertise. He is equipped to tell us about global snow cover dynamics and the interactions of snow cover with other aspects of climate. David, David Robinson, great to meet you. Thanks for being with us. Uh, it's my pleasure. So I live near mountains, and we talk about snowpack. I don't know how it is in New Jersey. It's a little lower elevation, generally speaking. Um, no snowpack there? We don't rely on a seasonal snowpack for our water resources, but certainly during the course of the winter, we have snows come and go and we can get up to three to four or five inches in our snowpack and there we start worrying about a flood threat um so snow isn't the be-all and end-all for us it's more a matter of our just general year-round precipitation regime now uh when i think about the the west and the east i have seen kind of predictions that the general trends resulting from climate change mean heavier uh, precipitation, say, from the Mississippi towards the east and up in the northeast, uh, and maybe in the south too, and much more arid conditions, uh, much less precipitation in the west generally. It, does that hold true to, in, in your mind? Yeah, it, it seems that's the case. It seems we may already be being seeing that, as, as you noted, with the declining snows in the west and southwest. Uh, while elsewhere the snows aren't showing a big sign of declining at this point, and that may be in part because it, it, it's a feast or famine situation where you may go without the smaller snowfalls, but boy, you can get clobbered with some big snows. And, and that's clearly been seen in parts of the upper Midwest as well as parts of the Northeast where uh, 2020 and 2021 winter uh, deposited really impressive snows um, of 30, 40 inches in parts of New York, um, New England, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania. Uh, Just examples of how the snow cover, uh, excuse me, the snowfall hasn't declined, but the the way it's falling is different. You know, it's, as I said, it's this all or nothing sort of thing. 
Now, I was in Utah many years ago when quite famously we had a deep, deep snowpack and then sudden warming and flooding. I'm imagining that the floods in the Midwest of recent years are are similar to that where you you get walloped and then a sudden warming trend and there's no place for the water to go but to rise all around you. Uh, Absolutely. The Missouri River has suffered from that in recent years, as has the Red River of the North in uh, the Dakotas uh, bordering with Minnesota. Um, those have all been real worrisome areas because you build up this uh, spring snowpack or early spring snowpack. And then, as you mentioned, the warm air comes in. Uh, I can recall uh, when there was that massive flooding out in Utah. I can't recall the year. Um, but this is this is the nature of our climate change, where we're prone to more extremes and, and very quick flip flops from one situation to another, um, leading to some really really serious and worrisome situations. Now, you're going to have to explain a bit of a paradox to me, and that is that if the air is really cold, you don't get quite the snow you do when the air is a little warmer? Yeah, you know, that's the old one. You might have grown up, you might have heard it's too cold to snow in some areas. Maybe not in San Diego. Uh, (laughs) But uh, uh, there is a relationship. It's called the clausius Clapeyron relationship, and it basically says... For about every one, 1.8, 1.9 degrees Fahrenheit of warming, you get about se- the potential of holding 7% more water vapor in the atmosphere. So that means as you get close to the freezing point, but it's still cold enough to snow, you can have more moisture in the atmosphere, thus produce more snow. So with us warming, a 25 to 30 degree snow uh, storm may produce have more water available to produce more snow than one that say falls at ten or fifteen degrees Fahrenheit. So, what about the water content in those comparative snowfalls? If it's warmer, is it also wetter? Yeah, because you just have more water vapor in there. In fact, there's a little trade-off because your snowflakes may be a little bit more dense and compact. So you might have a fluffier snow that measures up at the colder temperatures, but it's got a lot less water in it. So you really, if you want to really enrich your snowpack with water, um, your snowfalls at 25 to 30 degrees Fahrenheit do the trick better than those at lower temperatures. Now, I want to get back at this global perspective. If I were out in space looking down on planet Earth from the, from the, out above the North Pole, and if I were to see the seasonal fluctuations of the coverage, you know, the, the total snow cover or, or ice cover, and, and I would see that shrink and then grow from year to year. And, and, and the, the, total, I, the way I understand this, and I'm just a lay guy, so you're going to have to help me here, that the total coverage, the, 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 the surface area that is white becomes reflective and that is, is of great concern to you in your study of climate and, and, and the trends. Yeah, absolutely. When you're snow-covered or ice-covered, the reflectivity, it's known technically as albedo, rises. And that means any sun, sunlight hitting that surface, and you all know this with skiing, you put your sunglasses on, it reflects off the surface and doesn't heat that surface. So when the snow isn't there, you warm up the surface, which in turn warms up the atmosphere, and, and that can promote further melting and further warming. And what we've noted, particularly in my research over the last multiple decades, um, looking at snow cover extent over northern hemisphere lands, we're seeing snow melt earlier in the spring. Then you turn your eyes up to the high Arctic and you get into the summer where you've got your sea ice melting away. And when your sea ice disappears, it exposes the dark ocean surface, even less reflective than the land when it is snow-free. So that really can set things, no pun intended, snowballing towards increased warming and even more reduced snow and ice. So I'm thinking about this, and this is the way my mind works. I'm thinking about the tilt of the earth on an axis. I'm thinking about the seasonal fluctuation of snow and the snow cover. And if the axis is pointed a little bit more away from the sun and days are shorter during the winter, and that's when you're getting your snow, you want enough to stick around pretty long into the next season because as the axis of the earth, you see what I'm saying? As the axis of the earth is more pointed towards the sun, 
that reflectivity thing, you got to have deep snow covering a huge area and hope it doesn't melt. That's correct. As a matter of fact, when you're in the dead of winter, you don't have much sunlight where a lot of the snow is lying on the ground. That's why it really comes into play when you get to the spring. And what you've described is what we need to start a glacial period. Uh, glaciers that moved out of the Rockies into lower elevations um, and, and came down through the eastern part of North America and over in Europe just 20,000 years ago. In order to get those started, you have to have enough snow in one season so it won't all melt in the next season. Uh, and the real key there is keeping your summers cooler, um, not because – Yes, you want more snow, but the the key is you don't want that snow to melt. So you want to keep the albedo, the reflectivity up, uh, and then it can start going in the opposite direction of what I was early, earlier saying. You keep your surface brighter. That keeps the earth colder. That allows it to snow and stick a little bit more, and you're off to the races there. Uh, so it's a very interesting system. Of, but mind you, that's something that takes place over tens of thousands of years. We're talking about seasonal snow melts that take place in weeks or a couple of months. But it really is just kind of the geometry of the position of the Earth relative to the sun that with this albedo effect, with the reflectivity, you're, you're really looking at the ref You can have all the winter snow, but if there's no sun there, it's not, there's no reflection. You've got to have that reflection at the right time of the year. Uh, yeah, that's right, because if you don't, you're going to warm up your surface, which is going to result in even more snow melting adjacent to that area. So yeah. that's where things can kind of run out of control, if you will. Okay, I don't like being scared about any of this, but I'm looking at some <laughs> figures here, and because I live near Salt Lake City, uh, I'm looking at figures that say for a decade, 1970s, uh, that the average snowfall that, that decade was something uh, around 72 inches. And now uh, we're seeing in the decade, the, just the previous decade, 2010 till the present, we're talking about 40, I'm going to round up because <laughs> I have to, 42 inches. From 72 inches to 42 inches, that's not quite 50% drop, but that's mm. a substantial drop. No, that, that's quite dramatic and, and would be represent one of the greatest declines in snowfall uh, across the continental U.S. Uh, back east, there, there are decadal variations in snow, and you have to be careful to look at that. Um, but the, generally, there's no great trend towards decreasing snowfall in, say, the mid-Atlantic states. Uh, it's just the way it falls in a more streaky fashion, um, and and that's worrisome, particularly out west for water management purposes. Uh, you'd like to know what you're going to get with some degree of reliability, and of course you want those numbers to be high. But even if they're lower, you'd like to know that there's some stability to it, and, and the climate system right now is anything but stable. So I'm thinking about the different uh, factions, the different segments of society that have an interest in this, and it just seems that so many of us think in our own little narrow uh, you know, zones that we're in. For example, if I'm all about skiing, I'm just thinking about snow in terms of skiing, but if I'm a farmer, I'm thinking about my crops, and yet uh, so many of us just think in human terms. We're thinking about the waters for us. As somebody who knows climate and climate change, you got to be thinking – I would imagine, David Robinson, don't you think about uh, it's not just about water for humans? Oh, no, it's not. And, and, and snow cover is very important to wildlife in areas where it's most commonly found. Their ability to be able to um, burrow within the snow and forage to keep the ground from freezing as deeply because the snow acts as an insulative cover. Um, if the snow gets too deep, it's difficult to traverse the area for animals. But what is often more dangerous for the animals is if you get these layers of freezing rain. In other words, you get snow, and then you get some rain on top of the snow, and then maybe a little snow. And that can just totally impede 
animals being able to move their way through the snowpack. So it's not just the amount of snow, it's even the dynamics of the snowpack itself, kind of the, the geometry or the layer cake nature of a snowpack that can be a problem. So yeah, there, there are certainly concerns for wildlife um, that rely on a stable, um, consistent snowpack. Are the scientific methods for measuring snowfall, are they really refined systems? Do we know, do, when we go about and we're sampling here and there in the other place across various regions, are we getting good data? We are getting good data, but it's not as easy as some people might think. There's a wonderful automated network in the Western Mountains called the Snowtel Network. Um, that's been in place really about 40 years now. Uh, before that time, there were these intrepid um, water resource managers who would ski out and take surveys um, perhaps once a month. And there still is some of that going on, too. Uh, and that's just incredibly important, engaging how much water. And that's the real key. It's sometimes, yes, it's how deep the snowpack is, but in general, it's just how much water is in that snowpack that's so important. But, you know, for for many of us who measure snow, there's, there's a lot of science to it, and there are guidelines, but there's a little bit of art to it, too, because you have to judge where is the representative area to measure, um, and when to measure and how often to measure. Um, so there, there's a bit of science behind more than just go stick a ruler in the ground and get, get a reading. And that's just for depth. Uh, and then if you want to get to the snow water equivalent or what we call SWE, um, it's, it's a little bit more of a project. Uh, these snow tail stations weigh the snow. They have these pillows and they can weigh the mass of the snow and convert that into a water mass total. Uh, there are also acoustic gauges at these sites that sit above the snowpack and send an acoustic signal, and they measure the return period, and that gives them an idea of the depth of the snow underneath that sensor. So there, there's some clever ways that have come up just on the surface to measure snow, and then there are attempts from satellites to measure more than just the extent of snow, but to try to get an idea of the mass of snow. And there's been a lot of work on that for multiple decades now. And there, there's a semi-quantitative result from that. But it's, it's particularly difficult to use that information in mountainous areas because the snowpack is so variable in mountainous areas. Now, when I was an undergraduate many years ago, we're talking back in, well, I'm going to just say 1980, but it was really 79. Uh, I took a science class, and back in those days, the greenhouse effect was a concept, but it hadn't spread very far. Certainly, you know, it'd show up in like Time magazine and as kind of at the back of the magazine, and wasn't generally accepted as a as a thing. And now we know it is a thing. And I'm I'm wondering if, as our views have shifted about global warming, about climate change. I'm wondering if you're in a position as an academic with students, are you now in a position where you'll bring up things with students like uh, the discussions that we're hearing about migration because of a changing climate? Yeah, uh, I'm more of the physical scientist, but I am in a geography department. And the wonderful thing about that is it sits, geography departments sit at the nexus of the impact of humans on their environment and likewise, the impact of the environment on humankind. Um, so we can delve into that some, although I'm not a social scientist. But there's no question that these have important ramifications, whether we're talking about sea level, which threatens many coastal communities, particularly in countries that are, are quite impoverished. And then you look, say, to Asia, South Asia, South Asia, Southeast Asia, where Several billion people get their water from off the Tibetan Plateau uh, and the Himalayas and other mountain ranges in that area. Uh, and they're reliant on the snowpack and the glaciers up at those elevations despite sitting at lower elevations. So you got sea level rise to worry about. You've got your uh, mountain water resources to worry about. Um, this is a, a global problem 
and one that uh, deserves international attention because the atmosphere knows no borders. Um, and, and with that, we're, we're all in it together, if you might, you, you might say. David Robinson, so much to think about here. And I, I never want to paint any of our guests as alarmists, but do you have those sleepless nights? Restless on occasion, but you know, I, I, I soothe my savage beast here that I, I think that humankind was smart enough to get ourselves into this situation with the industrial age and so on and so forth. So, so I'd like to think there are a lot of smart people out there who can come up with solutions that can help us mitigate or reduce. Um, the impact we have on the environment, and at the same time recognize we're, we're going to have to be resilient and adapt to some of the change that's underway and is bound to p- accelerate in the future. So that's, that, that, that puts me to sleep, um, knowing that there are solutions out there to, to hopefully on a global basis reduce some of the problems out there, um, eliminate them, I'm not, I'm not that optimistic. Um, so I, I always tell my audiences when I finish giving a public lecture um, that I didn't want to give them nightmares, and, and I want them to leave hopeful that they can perhaps participate in doing something about addressing this problem. We've been learning about the connections between snowfall and climate with David Robinson. David, thank you so much for being with us. It's my pleasure. Enjoy the conversation. David Robinson is a distinguished professor of geography at Rutgers University and New Jersey's state climatologist. Now, if you want to learn about teeny tiny snowflakes one by one, instead of the big snowdrifts, the glaciers, icebergs, polar caps, your best bet might be to call our next guest. We're going to come back in just a moment and speak with a physicist who has been enlisted for his expertise to help filmmakers get it right when it comes to snow. Stay tuned. Marcus Smith here with Constant Wonder. We've all heard that no two snowflakes are alike, right? Well, is that even true? We're going to take a look back at a conversation I had with Kenneth Librecht, a professor of physics at Caltech University, Southern California. Uh, Librecht, an expert on snowflakes. In fact, he was the snowflake consultant for Disney's Frozen. I I should say not Frozen 2 because the science of snowflakes held pretty steady between the two movies. Well, I had a chance to speak with him about a winter ago on the science of snowflakes. Here's part of that conversation. Yeah, I was the uh, the snowflake consultant for uh, Disney's movie, uh, uh, Frozen. And basically, I was just sitting in my office minding my own business, and Disney calls and and says they have this this top-secret movie they're working on, and they want to get the snowflakes right. And so, uh, seriously, so I went down to to Burbank to the Disney Studios, and and uh, they were very you know very intent on on getting the the snowflakes just the way they they should be, and, and so I asked the the producer, it's like you know why do you why do you even take so much care, and he said that well you know when you're making a movie Disney has discovered that you know the magic we were just talking about magic magic has to be just so. You know, it's okay to conjure up snowflakes out of your fingertips, but they have to be real snowflakes or people just aren't going to buy it. Well, I am so grateful to you because I grew up with Frosty the Snowman and I knew something was wrong there. Something was very, very wrong. It looked, you know, all, all that stuff that looks like cotton wads or whatever. Uh, do you get credit in the movie? In the credits, does it roll down and it says Snowflake Consultant? It has your name there? You know, I, I get, yeah, my name is in there after a long, long time. So. <laughs> I was just really tickled when it got an Oscar, though. It was very exciting for me. I think, I think you had a hand in that. Congratulations to you. <laughs> <laughs> so what's your story of coming to the study of snow and snowflakes, and, and uh, how did you just specialize in that? You know, that's, that's kind of a... People just don't say, hey, I want to be a snowflake consultant, specialist, physicist. No, and, and I didn't either. I, I really got into it entirely from the science, and I was just thinking about how crystals grow and thinking about doing experiments in the lab to try to understand crystal growth. And it just sort of dawned on me that ice would be a, a really good material to use. It's very cheap and easy to, easy to buy. And uh, 
Um, so I started thinking about the physics of how ice crystals grow, and, and that sort of led me to, well, it's snowflakes. And I started researching this. Uh, uh, and, of course, people have been thinking about this for, for literally hundreds of years because you see them, and you kind of wonder, you know, why are these six-sided? Why do they have these branches? Uh, uh, why do they have the symmetry they do? And so there is a literature on this subject that spans uh, centuries, and uh, and the physics is is not very well known and and really quite quite fascinating, at least to me. You know, about 155 million years ago, I took a chemistry class, and uh, in my recollection, which is weak, I I remember seeing. A schematic diagrams of how some molecules are shaped. and I just remember hexagons being kind of prominent, but maybe that was just a schematic diagram. Maybe it had nothing to do with the real hexagonal crystalline structures of snowflakes. Is, there, is, is chemistry what you have to go to, to for the shape of the, of the hexagon? Well, absolutely. The, uh, the water molecule is uh, H2O, so it's got two hydrogens and one oxygen in there. And the two hydrogens stick out at about 120 degrees. And so when the water molecules uh, hook up to form a crystal, form a lattice, uh, they form a lattice with hexagonal symmetry. And so as the crystal grows, that's the underlying symmetry of the crystal. And that sort of, uh, as it grows, it trans transforms into a hexagonal uh, shape. So all those diagrams, all those diagrams I saw of water molecules when they had the two uh, little hydrogen things attached to the oxygen, they weren't on polar opposite ends. They were kind of off, you said, 120 degrees. That was, that was drawn that way to actually represent what it would look like if I could see it up close and personal. Yeah, sure. And that's where the hexagon comes from. Absolutely. Wow. I, <laughs> People I, figured this out in like 1920s. Wow. Now, okay, who wants to know this besides Disney Corporation? I mean, there's got to be people, uh, other than just having sort of an intellectual curiosity, uh, you're studying snowflakes because there's got to be some way that this spills out into applications here, there, or the other place, right? Uh, no, you would be wrong on that. Oh. Uh, nobody, nobody much cares. <laughs> uh, this is not a subject that a lot of people study. It's uh, a very, very small group of people over many years uh, have dabbled in this. And I like to call it a scientific hobby. Uh -huh. uh, you know, there's no, it's not like you get research money for this. You know, no tax dollars were spent on snowflake research. Huh. Uh, I, I was doing other things and just started doing this on the side. And over the years, I've been doing this kind of for 20 years. And over the years, I've just gotten better and better at sort of the understanding and, like you say, being able to grow my own snowflakes and things like that. Yeah, let's talk about that. You actually sit around sometimes as a maybe, uh, well, as a very well-informed hobbyist, and you, and you make snowflakes? Well, that's right. Uh, I sort of got into it from the science end, but also kind of branched out into the artistic side and trying to, it was just kind of a, a goal. I mean, can one make a snowflake which is as beautiful as the ones that fall out of the sky? Uh, now, if you go outside and look at snowflakes, they're not all perfectly shaped. There are a lot of them are misshapen and, and kind of globby, uh, but occasionally you get some really beautiful stellar crystals. And uh, it turns out with a little effort, you can make these in the lab. And, uh, in fact, I find them even prettier than the ones that fall out of the sky. And the really fun part is I can control the growth by just changing uh, the temperature and the humidity. And so I can make what I call designer snowflakes and, and really uh, kind of figure out how, you know, what shape I want and then make that shape uh, within some constraints, of course. Well, well, just play with me here for a little moment. I'm imagining you having some kind of a chamber that is cold, and you propel vapor through it somehow. Maybe there's some nozzle somewhere, and you shoot something out in, in a vapor. And maybe there's some way you're controlling the air currents inside the chamber. I'm just trying to imagine how you do this. No, you got it all right. Uh, uh, what I do is uh, all of those things. You know, you got to make some cold, and you got to somehow get the crystal started. Uh, one of the things I like to do is I will take, uh, make some very tiny crystals that are floating around in the air. And I'm tiny being like the size of a human hair or smaller. And, uh, and I'll let one of those land on a, on a piece of glass. 
and then sort of blow air over it, uh, humid air, and that causes the crystal to grow. And, uh, and it takes maybe a half an hour to make a snowflake that way. And while it's growing, I can take pictures of it. So I can make movies of growing snowflakes. And, uh, and because I'm watching them as they grow, the, the, the features are just especially sharp. Uh, and so they're, they're really kind of beautiful, and it's a lot of fun to do. And so I, so I just sort of keep doing it. So I have not done my homework. I should have this winter studied I should have gone out during the snowstorm. There was one storm we had here recently where the flakes, I called them flakes, but they were probably globs of multiple flakes because they looked so big. Those are, those are like mass agglomerations of multiple snowflakes. If they're, if they're as big as my thumbnail, that's not a flake, is it? That's right. That's a collection of flakes. I call it kind of a puffball, uh, and these can be very wet and heavy. Yeah, so uh, these are these these are the ones that are really fun to catch on your tongue, uh, <laughs> but they but they're not very pretty. I mean, they're all glommed together, and it's sort of just a glob of of snow. And you can't uh, you can't catch those and tease them apart from each other and retain the crystal. You'd be destroying whatever crystal is there if you tried to separate them. Oh yeah, they break, and you, and you can't really pick them up off the ground either. Uh, to see a really nice stellar snowflake, you see at Christmas time. Uh, those you you need to sort of catch them while they're fresh and just after they fall. So the best way is to just go outside when it's snowing and let crystals fall on your sleeve. And then you just get a little magnifying glass and you see what you can see. And a lot of days they're just not very very attractive. They're they're sort of misshapen. Uh, but when it's especially cold, uh, you sometimes get these really gorgeous uh, stellar crystals. Do you get any snow out there at Caltech? No, <laughs> not so much. Yeah, you, a funny thing you, you have to take field trips. Uh, yeah, I have. I would, I would go up to northern Ontario and photograph snowflakes. Uh, not so much lately. I like growing them in the lab. I sort of like both parts of it. You it have, is a little unusual to study snowflakes from Southern California. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah. You have, you have actually been able to replicate snowflakes so that uh, a snowflake could have a twin that would be precisely the same shape, dimension, structure, because we grow up with this idea that no two snowflakes are alike in the history of you know, the universe. And it sounds to me like that's kind of a problematic assertion. <laughs> well, it's a, it's a little like... Uh, uh, when anything that's complicated, it's hard to replicate in nature because there's so much randomness involved. The shape of a snowflake when it hits, when it hits the ground just depends on the entire history it experienced when it was growing. And, and it moves around through the clouds and the temperature and the humidity change around it. And as it's growing, every time it moves around, it grows a little bit differently. And that gives you gives a slightly different shape. And, uh, and you sort of compound that over half an hour it takes to grow a snowflake. And you get a very complicated crystal, which depends on the exact path it took through the clouds. And since no two crystals follow exactly the same path, uh, they don't look exactly alike. And, and it's true, the number of ways to make a snowflake is just an astronomically large number. And so you really won't make two alike. Uh, but in the lab, I can put two side by side and just hold them there. And now I control the history, and they both have the same history because I am just blowing air on them at the same temperature and the same time. And so now they grow very, very similarly. I like to call them identical twin snowflakes because they're like identical twin people. They're obviously very, very similar, but, but not, you know, not down to the molecule or anything. Our, our show title, Kenneth, Constant Wonder. Here you are doing this as a hobby. Clearly you're interested. Is What's the thrill of it for you? Well, I mean, these things fall out of the sky. It's kind of amazing. I grew up in North Dakota where we have a lot of snow, and, and I never really noticed any of it. Uh, uh, you know, it just wasn't, didn't, didn't come to my attention. And so when I first learned about it, I, my first reaction was just like, well, why did I not, you know, go outside and look at this when I was growing up? I mean, it's hard to look at a snowflake and not have a sense of wonder about, you know, where it came from and, and sort of why it looks like that. And and the shapes are a lot stranger than most people know. I mean, it's, they don't all look like Christmas card snowflakes. Some of them are columnar, some are hollow, 
uh, hollow columns and, and funny branches, uh, needles. Uh, one of my favorites, a capped column. It's a columnar snowflake with two kind of plate-like ones on either end, like two wheels on an axle. And you know, these people have known about this for 100 years. And uh, if you go outside, you can find them. Uh, they're very strange looking. I've seen some even stranger ones over the years. Uh, and so there's a lot going on there. Uh, and I don't know, I find the physics is, is quite fascinating. And, and they're, just, they're just fun to look at. It's, uh, I'm imagining these two wheels on an axle. And it, at some point, I would be tempted to say, well, there were two flakes that latched onto a, a, a column. But, but they're not. They're an integrally a, a single unit of, of crystal. Yeah, the column grows first, and then uh, if the conditions change in a certain way, then you can get plates growing on the ends of the column. And so those two plates will grow very similarly. So there's a sort of like identical snowflakes as well. Well, Kenneth Liebrecht, I have enjoyed tremendously learning more about snowflakes than I ever thought possible. I want to go out with my kids, and uh, just maybe somebody's just tuned in again. The best way to take a field trip to look at and observe snowflakes is just go out in the storm, uh, wear something that the snow can land on, have a magnifying glass. Is that the best yep. way? Just go out? Absolutely. Go out and see what you can find. Of course, you can do some in, some research on the Internet to see what's out there as well if you up snow crystals. And just, uh, I, I, I've never, do you take anybody out to go look at snow or is this just a solitary endeavor that you do? <laughs> well, if, if people want to go out, I will take them out. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, you sound to me. People who live in snow tend to have, don't want to get any more of it than they have. Yeah. <laughs> as, as I always like to say, it's, it's easier to appreciate snowflakes when you don't have a shovel in your hand. Kenneth Liebrecht is a professor of physics at the California Institute of Technology, or Caltech, Southern California, where there is not a lot of snow, from what I hear. But there are, down in Southern Cal, a lot of filmmakers who need experts on snow. That's where he comes in. Snowflake science, it's a visual miracle to think about the snowflake. And, well, you can catch them on the tip of your tongue, and then it's a matter of, do they have any flavor, in the sense of taste, all of that? What if you want to tingle in your ears? In addition to something for your eyes and your taste buds, you might want to venture into something called ice music. We're going to speak with a man who makes instruments out of ice with wonderful results when we return to Constant Wonder in just a moment. Welcome back to Constant Wonder. I'm Marcus Smith. We're talking about ice and snow. We just considered the science and the visual beauty of a snowflake, and that brought to mind one of my favorite explorations here on Constant Wonder. A while back, I had a chance to speak with an American who actually now makes his home in Sweden, which is the perfect place to pursue his passion, which happens to be creating instruments out of ice, musical instruments, including, I learned, something as elaborate as a pipe organ made of ice. Well, who would invest the time and effort to make a pipe organ out of ice. What kind of creativity, what kind of artifice is that? To make a musical, a functioning musical instrument, just think about the difficulty of it. Maybe it would take somebody with ingenuity and maybe it would be a bit of daring, maybe a little bit of craziness in the mix. May I introduce you now to Tim Linhart, who is the artistic force behind uh, an organization, a group called Ice Music. They make and perform on instruments. Instruments. I think you get that. Why and how they do it is the big question for us. And of course, we want to know also what they sound like. Tim Linhart is with us. Thanks for joining us on Constant Wonder. Thanks for having me on. This story goes back 20 plus years, and I like the story quite a bit. So I'm going to just ask you to share how you got started. Uh, well, I, you know, I was a, I was an ice, um, outdoor ice artist for many years before I started uh, with the, the, the instrument thing. Um, I was out building uh, giant snow sculptures and ice sculptures in the ski resorts in fancy hotels and things in Colorado uh, for many winters. And uh, then one time I got the idea for one of my sculptures that I'd like to make a giant violin because I like the shape. And I had a friend who was a guitar maker. And when I was talking to him about this sculpture idea, his first you know, thing he said was, wow, how's that going to sound? 
because uh, his perspective was all about the sound of things. And that really, once that question popped up in the in the air, yeah, it was like a giant black hole just swallowed the rest of my life, more or less, uh, you know, to this phone call. <laughs> yeah. What are you working on right now, by the way? Well, I just finished a uh, – today we're, we're, we're putting away the last of the ice instruments. Um, we, we built a concert hall here in the north of Italy, up in the Alps, at about uh, 8,000 feet in the Alps. Um, we built a concert hall, seats about 200 people, and, uh, and the full orchestra, and put on about 50 concerts over the course of the winter. Now, you say you built a concert hall, and what, what are the materials that you built it of? Uh, snow and water. It's a giant igloo, uh, kind of a um, you know, very comp- complex version of the igloo, basically. Uh, like I say, it has, it has a place to seat 200 people in the audience, and then the, uh, the whole orchestra there in the pit in the middle. Uh, when it, it very interestingly, when we were getting approved for the building, fine, you know, the building inspector has to finally say, okay, I approve this. And they don't know how to calculate that. So we had to drive a 10 ton snowcat up onto the roof, uh, of the concert hall of the igloo, just to be sure it was going to be safe. You built a temporary concert hall. Yeah. Yeah. Now it's, now it will begin to melt. This is uh, at this point of the snowpack has just been building and building and building, um, and uh, and the inside the temperature is still minus. Uh, well, let's see. Or excuse me, I, I'm thinking uh, centigrade, but but about 23 degrees, 23, 25 degrees, even still inside of there. But it will now slowly melt away. So the whole thing will by August, I guess, maybe will all be gone. And you built the concert hall for the sake of how many performances? About 50. 50 performances. Uh, yeah. 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 And, um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's actually not that hard because it's just snow and water. And both snow and water are easy to move around. Uh, you know, with a, with a snow cat and, a, and then a, a, a snow blower, you can get the snow where you want pretty quickly and easily on, at, in large scale. And likewise with water. And when you put those two elements together, you end up with white ice. And white ice is, um, you know, it was a very important element in my career because uh, it's the main, you know, material that I work with. And it turns out to be incredibly useful and um, flexible in its application. And that's just the mixture of snow and water. You glob it on in a uh, below-freezing environment, and it turns to white ice. Add some more water, and the ice gets more um, transparent. And um, so I started doing sculptures with that, and it just is, it's a great material. The other material I work with is clear ice, which is frozen water, you know, molecule against molecule. And uh, so the white ice is more flexible, and the clear ice is, of course, transparent and uh, more stiff. So when I'm building an orchestra or an instrument, I can use those two different options of material depending on the job I'm trying to accomplish, you know, the specific element of of the instruments that I'm trying to make happen. We're going to hear some samples of what these instruments might sound like. Uh, We we do have some audio for that. But first, I want to go go back to the pipe organ. Uh, Why would the pipe organ not melt while it's playing? There's, There's the passage of air involved somehow. Right. Uh, the, the, <laughs> you know, that's a, it's a bit of an irony because the pipe organ did melt while it's playing, but, but because of the presence of the audience and, and not because of the air you blow through, because it's made inside of a frozen environment. Um, the, the, the pipe organ was made up at the Ice Hotel in Sweden, and um, that was my first encounter with the inside of an ice building. And uh, the inside of an ice building, you have a very consistent, uh, you know, instrument-friendly, ice-friendly uh, ice environment in there. So you can do things and um, you can accomplish things because it's so consistent, the temperature and exactly as you were saying before, the temperature, the humidity, the et cetera, et cetera. Um, so it was working very nicely, 
until the audience walked in and changed the whole uh, all the all those conditions. Suddenly, you would, there was 450 hot breathing bodies in the presence of the pipe organ, and um, everything went wildly out of tune. The ice began melting, and all the orchestra went wildly out of tune with contrary to itself because strings if it gets warmer strings will go down in pitch and pipes will go up in pitch so uh, that particular uh, event turned out to be a musical disaster but it did uh, lead me to um uh the realization that i really need to have my own architecture you know in 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 the shape and the structure of the concert hall to ventilate the the breath from the audience out while keeping the instruments in a nice, cool, and steady place. You know, a melting organ yeah. with an audience watching it and the ice instruments, that all calls to mind Salvador Dali. I guess that's a surreal scene of things melting all over the place, you know. Uh, go yeah, ahead. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, so Tim Linhart, uh, we, we should listen to a little something, and and I'm just not going to even say what it is, but just surprise you with it and listen to, to a little sample, and you can kind of describe what this is. The instrumentation, uh, and and the make of the instruments. These are these are made of ice. <laughs> Okay, there, there's a sample for you, and I don't know how it came across the phone lines for you, but can you recognize that? Yeah, that was a Gypsy Swing uh, piece we did, whew, I don't know, seven or eight years ago, I think, in Sweden. Uh, probably a Django Reinhardt type, but don't quote me on that. So the instrumentation uh, is uh, every, every single device is made of ice, uh, exclusively of ice? Yeah. Not exclusively. I blend other materials. The ice will not do every job in an instrument. Uh, so the neck, uh, for example, on, on a stringed instrument is, is not made of ice. It's made of wood. Um, of course, the strings are, are, are metal or whatever they happen to be uh, for that particular instrument. Uh, and then there is um, some special accommodations made of wood, which separate. They're just separating uh, devices, uh, you know, between the the musician and the and the instrument that they're playing. And otherwise, the sound box is all made 100% of ice, and it's free, um, you know, a free flexible acu- acoustic instrument. And I think that's one of the things that have really been important to me to stay true to is that it really be an acoustically functioning instrument. Uh, you know, there's a lot of tricks you can play with synthesizers and so on, but my pursuit is really, you know, the, the understanding deep enough what's really happening to get a real acoustic function out of things. So if you make a guitar or a violin or a cello out of ice and you put it in the hands of a guitarist or a violinist or a cellist, are they going to recognize that instrument or are they going to have to make some kind of adjustment to some dimensions of it that are foreign to them? Right. Right. You know, it's a new instrument to them in the beginning. Oh, it's a new instrument. And, they, and you know, there's, there's definitely issues uh, in the first day or two, maybe, of their of their relationship with their with their instrument. And, of course, there's the temperature. There's the, there's the um, high elevation uh, issue. There's the how do you dress them properly and get them functional at that level, and then they come in, they meet their instrument, and they start to deal with the uh, tuning and 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 so on, the playing, and and they realize their fingers were cold and they didn't have enough food or they didn't need more socks, etc. Um, but eventually, they just completely forget about it and become really, you know, they have to kind of earn back their their right to be to be uh, talent in that new environment but in a couple of days they're fine and they do great 
Let's listen to a little bit of cello, uh, a sample here. I, I just think this is phenomenal and ethereal and, and kind of crazy. And we're going to have to eventually explain why you're doing this. Uh, there, there might be a rationale behind it. I, I think what we have next here is, in fact, some cello music. Let's give it a go. Now, to me, for all the world, that sounds just like string instruments. So there were many of them. It wasn't yeah. a solo instrument. Were they all cellos? Uh, that was cellos and violas. Yeah. And yeah, cellos and violas playing together. What do... Um, and that's that. That's Giovanni Solima. He's an Italian uh, cellist who composed and, 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 and put together that. And uh, we did a tour with him last winter. Uh, my first... Um, venture out of out of the deep winter we took the instruments off the mountain and made a tour with this uh, blow up plastic bubble inflatable plastic bubble that we had refrigeration uh inside of and uh, it was a very interesting to hear the uh we had a concert in palermo in sicily where there was the full wooden orchestra and then he was playing his cello his wooden cello, and then going into the bubble and playing the ice cello and back and forth between the two cellos. And so you could hear the voice, one directly to the, to the other one. And very interesting uh, that they're both equally, you know, I would say equally beautiful to me. Um, the wooden one had this very complex, earthy, you know, kind of a sound like, like cellos have. And the ice one had much more the voice of the, the heavenly spaces, you know, almost the, the, the voice of the clouds and, and just a clarity and a purity and, and, and not all of the other complications that were involved in, in it, but very nice. The audience might say that sounds qualitatively similar, but more ethereal. And what did the performer say? Did the performer feel like the instrument was doing what an instrument should do? Um, yeah, eventually they do. But you know, it takes it's a new it's a, it's a new exploration of what that instrument can do, particularly on the on the you know the upper levels of performance. This guy Solima in particular, um, they're 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 really finding out what it can do because who knows really what it can do. Uh, it's basically, it's very similar, you know, to a wooden instrument. You, if you, if somebody didn't say it, you might not notice it. It's a bit like wine tasting, really. Tim Linhart, founder of Ice Music in Sweden. Let's go out now with just a, a short sample of, of Ice Music, what it sounds like. Constant Wonder is a production of BYU Radio. BYU Radio.